Hi, I'm Peter Derman, minimally invasive and endoscopic spine surgeon at the Texas Back Institute in Dallas, Texas. You are listening to Interview with the Surgeon with the Surgeon Agent. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining Interview with the Surgeon. Today, we welcome Dr. Peter Derman, orthopedic spine surgeon. Doc, how are we doing today? Hi, thanks for having me. Doing well. Thank you for being with us. So let's kind of get this started here. You know, thinking back a couple of years ago, what were your goals and aspirations during your residency? And how those changed throughout your fellowship? As far as residency goals for residency, I think I wanted to learn everything that I could. I did an orthopedic surgery residency at the hospital for special surgery, went into residency, not entirely sure what kind of surgeon I wanted to be when I grew up. And so really approached every rotation as if that's what I was going to do so that I could really get a good idea of what it entailed and, and whether I wanted to do it or not do it. Um, ultimately, I found myself attracted to spine surgery, and I did a spine fellowship at, at Rush in Chicago focused on minimally invasive techniques. Um, you know, my goals, my career goals and life goals are, are two or several fold, I guess. I, I like everything, which is part of my problem, and uh, I have a lot of interests. You know, I, I am interested in academics both publishing and teaching side. And then, you know, I love doing spine surgery. And then I am really passionate about innovation. And so device development, et cetera. And so for me, when I was looking at, um, you know, what kind of practice environment I want to be in, um, the, the elusive privademic world was really the optimal thing for me. Um, there's not a ton of such practices, but, but places that are private practices, often large private practices that have, um, you know, these academic accoutrements. So within the spine world, it's places like Rush, um, HSS, um, Jefferson, and then Texas Back Institute in the Dallas area, which is where I ended up. And I'll kind of take us through that, that fellowship here. You know, what was your mentality getting into your first job search? And did that perspective change these beginning years of your career? Yeah, so my mentality, I actually started my job search when I was a senior resident, actually. Not formally, but just kind of putting out feelers. Um, because I knew I wanted kind of this, this privademic setting, um, it, it really helped me narrow down where I was looking. And so... I considered staying at, at the hospital for special surgery, which was very flattering that they were willing to have me. Um, but I was also interested in Texas Back Institute. I'm actually from the Dallas area originally anyway. And so I started reaching out to them and, and kind of developed that relationship informally, you know, sending emails. I'd go home for, you know, um, the holidays and, and meet up with some of the partners there and get to know them. And then in my chief year, I really kind of formalized it and, and was talking to both Hospital for Special Surgery and then um, TBI and ultimately landed at TBI there. So now thinking about that, during that process, were you really focused on that private side or did you ever really consider going ac academic fully? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't think I, I mentioned yet, I, I'm also really into entrepreneurship. Uh, I, I got an MBA at Wharton when I was in medical school. I, I did the Penn Wharton dual degree. And, and for me, my own personal, um, you know, personality, I, I just don't like the idea of working for someone. Um, most doctors these days are going into employed type positions and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like that's a, that's a great job for somebody who doesn't like taking the risk associated with private practice. 
you know, they don't have to take the risk of, of building a practice or not having income, say if there's a global pandemic and everything shuts down. Um, but for me, I, I like the, I, I'm attracted to the risk reward of being able to build something for myself. And so, you know, I, I really did want that, that private, private practice uh, component of things. Now, kind of following up on building something for yourself, being in the private practice sector, you know, what things have you learned about how to actually build a successful practice when you go through this residency program and fellowship program, they don't really teach you these fundamental business aspects. Yeah, they teach you almost nothing about business uh, throughout um, medical training. Um, and that's part of the reason I got my MBA. Um, but, but I think it's a real travesty. And, and fortunately, the tides are turning. I think physicians are starting to, to realize the importance of having business acumen. I mean, when I'm not that old, uh, and when I um, applied for business school, I didn't tell anyone at my medical school because there was such a stigma against the business side of things and going to business school that I had legitimate concerns that I would be seen as a sellout and people would write me off. Oh, he's never going to be a doctor. And if he is, he's going to be some evil doctor. Um, and so I, I told nobody. Um, fortunately, that's changed. And I think that um, having an MBA as a physician is, is regarded as a good thing. Um, but, but it certainly wasn't initially. Um, but I think it's important and increasingly important to have business acumen for any of us. And, and I don't mean to say that, like, just because you're business minded, you have to go into private practice. You know, business school teaches you a lot about a lot of things. And, you know, a hospital is a business, too. And running a department in a hospital is a business, too. And, and the skills that you learn as far as leadership and, um, you know, marketing and organization can be can can be manifest in a variety of different, you know, settings. So I think it's important that we all have business acumen. And I think that it's important so that as a, as a profession, we can advocate for ourselves, um, which means also advocating for the patients. What did I learn? Um, and, and building a practice. So I, one of the downsides of coming to practice at Texas Back is it's located in Dallas, Texas, which is one of the most densely populated areas with spine surgeons. You, you literally cannot throw a rock and, and not hit a spine surgeon in Dallas. They're on every quarter. There's like 300 spine surgeons here. And so it is, it is very, very saturated. And so I knew coming in and my partners were very upfront that it was going to be a process for me to build my practice. I was not going to walk into anything and have you know, patients waiting for me. But if I was willing to put in the work, then then it's a very good opportunity. Um, and so, you know, I showed up my first week of, of being an attending, you know, this thing I've been training for forever. And I had like a week of orientation. And then I showed up for my second week. And I was like, kind of shadowing my partners and helping out. And at the end of the second week, I was like, okay, so when do I start having clinic? And they literally laughed and they said, well, once you have some patients, you can have some clinic. Um, and so all during that time, I was, I was marketing. And, and what that meant, at least in the pre-COVID era, which hopefully we will go back to some sort of normalcy soon, um, was literally going door to door um, I would just drive up to a medical center in town, and there's a lot of them here. I would walk into the medical office building. I would take the elevator to the top floor, and then I would walk every single floor on the way down of every single office building in the, in, in the medical center, just knocking on every door, going in, saying, hi, 
uh, totally unannounced, by the way. Hi, I'm Peter Derman. I'm a, you know, minimally invasive spine surgeon in town. You know, I have these unique things that I do. Is there anyone I could talk to? Here are my business cards. Here's my cell phone number. Um, and, and, you know, about like, I don't know, a third of the time I'd be able to like go back and, and talk to the physician there. And, and, you know, I did it, not just physicians, physical therapists, chiropractors, podiatrists, really anyone who would take my business card and cell phone number, I would give it to them. Um, and, and that's the way that early on, what else was I going to do? Sit around and wait. Nobody was coming to my office. Um, I was able to, to make some connections. And so that's like step one. Oh, the other thing I would do is I would meet them. I would get their information. And then I would write every single one of them a handwritten thank you note saying, thank you for meeting with me. Even if they just gave me like two seconds in the hallway um, with my card and my, and my cell phone number in it again. So like, you know, Hey, here I am. And, and, and I'm a nice guy and I'm communicative and that communicative thing is a big deal. So, you know, I told them, if you have a patient that you want to send to me, or you're even thinking about maybe sending to me, call me on the phone. Don't even think twice. Just call me on the phone um, or shoot me a text. Hey, can I talk to you about a patient? I'll talk to you anytime. Um, and, and, and then, you know, being available to them. And then after you see the patient, and this is something that I still do to this day, and I'm in my third year of practice. And fortunately I have a quite a busy practice. Um, after I see a patient, I reach out to that referring doctor every single time after I see that patient. And so it's just one of my checkbox things to do at the end of the day. I spend half an hour reaching out to all these folks. And as a result, I have a referral source or a, a, you know, a, a book of business that is very dedicated because there's not, a, you know, there's not a lot of time and, and not a lot of subspecialists are spending the time to reach out to the people who are kind of the boots on the ground, the NPs and the PAs and the primary care doctors who are taking care of these folks. So, you know, I think what I tell kind of the more junior folks in my practice as they come in is what, what is your advantage as a young surgeon? Well, you don't have gray hair, so you know you don't look distinguished. I wear glasses and a tie every day, so I can try at least. Um, you know, you're not the most um, you know experienced in the OR, um, but you know what you have that the experienced guys don't have. You have time, and so you have time to make those connections with the referring doctors, with the physical therapists, and with your patients. And so I used to sit for an hour on a follow-up visit with a patient, like, and explain to them everything. And, and that becomes your best referral source because it's self-perpetuating. So, so if you see these patients, you, you treat them res with respect, you treat them like your own family member. Um, what you find is they start to, they start to send their brothers and their sisters and their mothers and their neighbors. And, and that's where your, your practice really starts to snowball. And then, so that's like kind of referral source, um, you know, obtaining them. The other piece of information that I would give is you should be exceptionally, exceptionally conservative in your surgical indications, um, or I guess your, your indications in general, for those of you out there that are non-surgeons. But, but from my perspective, you know, it's, it's surgery, whether to do surgery or not do surgery. And, and one of the problems of being in a very... Um, congested market with spine surgeons is people get very aggressive because, you know, they just, they want to operate and support their practice. And um, one of the things that you're going to want to do when you get out of practice is operate. 
not because you're some greedy, terrible person who like wants to make a bunch of money and drive a Lambo. Um, you just have been waiting for this point for like the last 30 whatever years of your life. And this is what you've been trained for. And you get out and it's crickets and you just want to like do the thing that you love to do. And what I would say is you should be unbelievably strict with your indications for a number of reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. Two, everyone is watching you. So if you have a complication, even if it's like a complication that can happen to anyone, a totally normal thing, people are going to be like, oh, that's the new guy. That's the new girl. Like, you know, they shouldn't have been doing that thing anyway. Look, they're just a cutter, right? That, that is not the reputation that you want to get. You want to hit home runs early on so that you're seen as a very consistent, very good surgeon. Um, and then the other thing is word gets around. So, you know, people know who are the people that just operate on people. And, and one of the best ways to get patients in the door is to be seen as a conservative physician who's going to do the right thing and treat patients with respect. Um, and, and in my mind, you're sowing seeds. So you're not operating on everything that comes in the door. You're picking the home runs. And every patient that you see loves you, whether or not you operated on them or not. And they're going to send more patients your way. So the key is to look not just in the short term, but it's a long-term play. And, and so you really got to look on the long-term horizon because you don't want to burn yourself and your patients early on. So kind of with that same mindset, let's kind of take it back a notch and focus on what advice do you have for the graduating chief residents and fellows entering the professional job market for the first time? Yeah, I think what's important is to be honest with yourself and, and sit down and think about really what you want to do with your life. And, and like, for instance, I trained in, in like a lot of academic type places. Um, but, but, you know, I didn't want to do like pure academics. Like I trained, I, I went to Stanford undergraduate. I went to Penn medical school. Those are like very traditional, you know, academic places. And then, you know, I started to realize that that wasn't really for me. And that's why I sought out HSS and rush, but like a lot of people, train at these academic places, most of us train at academic places, and then go into non-academic jobs. So I guess what I would say is for your whole life, you've just been, you've just been like trying to get to the next step so that it can like build your resume so that you can get to the next step after that. But like, this is hopefully the last step. And, and you want to be true to yourself in what you want to do. So don't like aspire to this like prestigious academic job if you hate research. Like you don't have to impress anyone anymore. This is about you and your life and your fulfillment. So I would sit down and think about like really what makes you happy? You know, what is your, what do you want in your career going forward? And then, and then be honest with yourself and, and, and pursue that. The other thing I would say is probably the least important thing with your, you know, when considering your first job is your first year salary. It is like so meaningless. I mean, none of you out there are going to be poor because you've put in the work and we've all joined a profession in which we all make a very nice, very livable income. Um, what you need to think about is the long term again. And so, you know, avoid some job that that pays you big bucks early on because if you know three years from then you 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 have no practice or you owe that money back or you can't leave, that that's a huge issue and that's a red flag. Um, and and it might be the fact that you take a job that has a lower upfront income, 
because one, it makes you happy. And two, there's a lot of potential there going forward. So, you know, don't get too hung up um, on, on the first year, second year salary. Um, really find the place that, that you think is going to be a good match for you long term and, and where you have opportunity. Now, obviously, in 2020, we dealt with the pandemic, and it kind of changed the game as far as how a graduating class can go out there and network with folks like yourself and also other surgeons, right? So what advice do you have for the graduating class regarding their networking and outreaching process in a virtual world? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, uh, whole new world out there. Um, there are, you know, there are things like LinkedIn where a lot of, um, a lot of surgeons and non-surgeons post you know, about what they do. I've, I've met a lot of people over the last year on LinkedIn, other surgeons from around the world who I didn't know before and probably wasn't spending that much time, you know, looking at this stuff. But I feel like that world has kind of blossomed. And, you know, we talk back and forth and we share cases. And that's a way to kind of get involved with people. Um, you know, there's virtual conferences that are being held right now. You know, I, I I think they're not as good as a real conference, but you do what you can. Um, one thing that I'm passionate about is, so um, my, my background is minimally invasive endoscopic uh, spine surgery. And so there's a society called the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, ISMIS, um, which, which is kind of the nearest and dearest to my heart because it really represents what I'm passionate about. And I'm on the Young Surgeons Committee at ISMIS. And, and one thing that we've been doing is hosting monthly Zoom calls where we go through interesting cases and, and nobody with gray hairs is allowed to come. It's just, you know, young folks, because we don't want people, you know, trainees, fellows, residents, young attendings to feel intimidated. Like they can't ask questions like, oh, is that going to be a stupid question? Um, you know, we, we throw out interesting cases and then we have like the most wonderful dialogue about them. And, and I really look forward to these. I'm, I'm hosting one. Uh, I'm kind of the moderator on this coming Tuesday. Um, and it's really neat. You learn from your peers and the, the nice thing that you realize or the thing that you realize once you graduate is you become a little bit of an island and it's, it's hard to kind of learn these tips and tricks from the operating room because now you're just doing your own thing. And the last thing I want to do is just stagnate. Right. And so things like this are, are a good way to share experiences and, and network with other folks. And I'm sure that, you know, the other societies in, in a variety of subspecialty has subspecialties have similar kind of opportunities. So to follow up on your involvement with the society, what type of things, what type of educational programs do you guys really offer to the young and next generation of surgeons? Yeah, so one of the big things that we're doing is, is these, we call them uh, tube talks, because we are you know, minimally invasive, we operate through these little tubes a lot of the time, so tube talks. So we do that. Um, there's a lot of um, content online, which I actually really enjoy, um, you know, short little snippet videos like two minute video on, on some interesting topic with, you know, some famous surgeon who, who tells you how they think about, you know, I was watching one yesterday, I was bored, um, sizing cervical disc replacements. And I saw Chris Radcliffe, who, who I know, and uh, who's a very well-known guy, um, talking about how he thinks about that. And, and so that, that's, that's all available on the uh, Isthmus website. Um, and then hopefully we'll get the in-person meeting uh, back up and running uh, for the coming year, because that, that really is just a, a fantastic learning experience. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams.